you're passionate about transforming retail operations and improving performance, plus you're accountable for key change projects and programs in your company, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. Hey there, welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. I am Oliver Banks, your host and your guide to the world of retail transformation. Now, if you tuned in to the last episode, that's episode 83, then you will remember that we welcomed on Steve Dennis, who was talking about what it takes to really be remarkable in the world of retail. If you don't know Steve, he's a consultant, a keynote speaker, a writer, and now an author. He's just released his book, Remarkable Retail, which is a fantastic read. It's proving to be very popular already, even within these early days since its launch. Steve is also one of the world's top retail influencers, and he's regularly writing in Forbes as a senior contributor. During his 30-year career, Steve has been a senior executive at two US retailers, Neyman Marcus and Sears. And he's got a particular focus on strategy, on multi-channel, on omni-channel. More on that as we get into this episode. (laughs) But absolutely, Steve knows his stuff. So if you've not had a chance to check out that episode, I do encourage you to go back and listen to it right now before you get on to this part two. But before we welcome Steve Dennis back onto the show, I just want to briefly let you know about Retail Transformation Live. I am very proud to have the opportunity to put on this virtual event for you. And it's all happening on the 9th of July. It's a date for your diary. So pop it into your calendar, block out the whole day because this is going to be a big event. We're going to have some fantastic keynote speakers, which are going to be announced very, very shortly, as well as loads of really interesting and relevant, highly relevant sessions. The theme is all about being future fit. So recognizing that coronavirus has happened, absolutely, but also looking beyond that. Actually, how do you propel your retail business to really start to excel in the future? There is going to be a whole lot more to share over the coming weeks. But if you want in, it's absolutely free to register. And like I say, it's virtual. So you can join from wherever it is in the world that you are. Head over to retailtransformation.live and register for free. And I look forward so much to joining you on the 9th of July, retailtransformation.live. It will be a ton of fun. Right, so shall we get into this conversation with Steve Dennis? It's part two, and you can find the show notes over at obandco.uk slash 84. Here we go. Steve Dennis, welcome back to the Retail Transformation Show. How are things? Thanks for having me back. Things are good. Super. Now, last time in episode 83, we dived into your brand new book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Digital Disruption. And there you laid out a framework which was really great, eight essential elements of Remarkable Retail. So just to very quickly run through, we've got digitally enabled, human-centered, harmonized, mobile, personal, connected, 
And then two really interesting ones that we dived into a little bit more detail last time, memorable and radical. And I'm keen to jump into those again later on today. But right to begin with, I just want to dive into the third one, harmonized. Sure. Which may confuse people. And it certainly when I first came across it, I was slightly unsure of the difference between that and omnichannel. Omnichannel, of course, has been a, a massive buzzword or trend, depending on how you look and understand that word. What's the difference? How do you see the difference between harmonized and omnichannel, Steve? Sure. And I generally like to try to avoid getting into big semantics battles. And of course, as a, as a consultant, many of us, and I'm guilty of this, like to invent new words, and they may or may not be substantively different. <laughs> I, I do believe there's a substantive difference. And I'll, I'll just say just by way of background, I started working in the world of multi-channel or omni-channel or whatever you want to call it way back in 1999. Mm. And uh, I was actually the named the VP of multi-channel integration at Sears. And of course, Sears has had quite a lot of problems at this point, well known. But I will say one of the things that was interesting and just a quick anecdote, uh, which I get into in the book a little bit, but Arthur Martinez, who was the CEO of Sears at the time at our annual officers strategy retreat. So this was the winter of 1999. So quite a long time ago, mm. uh, he made a statement that the future success of Sears will be based upon our ability to meet our customers' needs anytime, anywhere, anyway, which was really pretty an amazingly prophetic statement to make. Yep. Because, uh, you know, we were very much in the early days of, of the internet and, you know, Amazon is, was, you know, probably doing $10 million or something way back when. Um, but we saw that in order to do that, we had to break down the silos uh, between our operations and our databases and inventory and all that kind of stuff. So we felt that needed a, an enterprise level focus. And so I was put in charge of that initiative, which I led for a couple of years. And then I went on from there to the Neiman Marcus Group to do some similar things as well as, as other things. So I've been wrestling with these cross-channel issues frictionless commerce, unified commerce, whatever you want to call it, for many, many years. Um, as omnichannel started to become a term, and two things really bugged me about it. One was, the more substantive is, that I don't think it's about being everywhere, which if you do take omni literally, mm. you know, that's what it points to. It's not about being everywhere that customers are. It's showing up in remarkable ways where it really matters. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. Mm. But the other thing, which is maybe just me being a whiny old man, is that many retailers went after their omni-channel strategies in a very kind of everyone out for a pass sort of way, as we say in the States, where it was not very well focused. And in many cases, it ended up being about dialing up their e-commerce capabilities sometimes in a, in a not very integrated way. So anyway, I think there's just many ways that that term is either ill-defined or the strategies themselves have been not sufficiently focused to get the results that they want. And in many cases have just resulted in spending a lot of money to just move customers from the brick and mortar channel to the e-commerce channel. Mm. That's not a very good economic outcome and that's not really moving your strategy ahead. So the reason I picked Harmonized is really this idea because uh, I fundamentally believe all this channel-centric thinking is not helpful, that the customer is the channel. Customer is going to go back and forth between various 
points of contact channels, if you want to call them that. Yeah. And our job is to not only make that easy and frictionless or whatever you want to call it, but to really make that a remarkable experience. So harmonized, you know, I borrow that musical metaphor or what have you to try to think about how all elements of the customer experience can kind of sing beautifully together. So if you think about a great piece of music, for it to not be a disaster, right, you have to eliminate all the discordant notes. Mm. So, so when we think about the customer experience, if we can find those things that are annoying or painful or getting in the way of really delighting the customer, we want to root those out. Uh, but the really powerful thing is to try to create an experience that really resonates deeply with the customer in the same way that a beautiful piece of music does. Mm. So if we can amplify those notes or have aspects of the experience to really sing beautifully together, that's more powerful than any one piece of the customer journey working well. So, so I pick it partially to be a bit provocative and evocative, but also I think to try to help guide people to, to where the opportunities really lay in, in uh, transforming the customer journey. Mm. I really love that musical metaphor with the customer obviously as the, the audience. You can play a perfectly good tune on one instrument mm -hmm. and that's nice. But actually, as you add more instruments into the band, into the orchestra, you can create, as you say, so much more depth, so many more different sounds and, you know, evoke more emotions and, you know, create a more memorable experience as well, you know, in the world of music. And I think it works really well blending that through to different channels. Obviously, that's not how a customer would see it, but it makes sense. And if there is a duff note in there, you hear that one, unfortunately. Right. And I, and I think from a leadership standpoint, it really, you know, the risk of overplaying the the analogy or the metaphor, you know, calls for a pretty amazing conductor, right? To orchestrate yeah. all of this. And so, and you have to orchestrate it from the brand perspective, not from the store or e-commerce or mobile or you know, whatever perspective. So, so I think we've got to become, as leaders of businesses, we have to become better conductors. And our job is to figure out how to best orchestrate that experience, which depending upon the type of customer we're serving or the type of product or service they're looking to get from us can vary quite a lot. So it's certainly not uh, without a lot of complexity, but I think fundamentally there, there are a few principles to, to start with that will guide us on our journey in a better way. Mm, I love it. I love it. So let's move on to a different segment of your remarkable retail framework. And I want to go back to the, the final couple, memorable first. It's funny, you know, we, we spoke about memorable, obviously in the last episode, exploring about actually how do you make your experience remarkable so that people are wanting to obviously remember it, but also talk about it to their friends, to their colleagues, etc. Right now, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, that gets a bit more difficult, doesn't it? How, how can you be memorable in this world where, you know, we're doing social distancing, it's all a bit cold and heartless potentially, but, you know, very functional, very I want to stay clean. I want to stay away from people. Sure. What does that look like right now? Well, I, I completely agree with you that it's it's a lot more challenging. And with any luck in the not too distant future, it will be meaningfully less challenging. But I, I think, you know, the general guidance I give, and of course, it's it's hard to have a one size fits all prescription for an industry 
as diverse as as retail and and of course certain brands find themselves in very different circumstances so but i will say at the risk of being trite i think it really starts with having a very clear idea of the consumers you're trying to serve and what will really resonate deeply with them and then trying to find ways to meet those needs and desires in really powerful ways. So I think there's going to be a foundational element of that to just about any brand. In the short term, I think the particular emotional and and literal needs of customers may be very affected. Mm. So in some cases, it may be, as we've seen quite a lot of retailers do, say, okay, well, if I can't, my stores aren't open, I can deliver to your home, uh, or I can offer curbside pickup, or as we slowly start to reopen, I can shift my model to appointment only. You know, I like quite a lot what some grocery stores have done by offering seniors only shopping time. And so, you know, so it's taking what you are good at and what you want to be known for and the stories you hope people will will tell to themselves about your brand and, and share with others but adjusting it to meet the moment that we live in right now. So so that can vary quite a lot, certainly based upon your particular situation. I think the other thing, which I, I do make this, this point more so with essential number two and human-centered, but I think it's really particularly important today and presumably for at least the next several months, is how do you focus more on building trust and strengthening the relationship with the customer, even if you're not in a position to sell them anything or to sell them very little. Mm. I think that's coming from a place of empathy, compassion, humanity, whatever you want to call it. You know, you've seen retailers not only give things away, say, to healthcare providers or first responders or what have you, uh, maybe jump through hoops to take care of customer needs, even if there isn't a lot of obvious money in it for them in the short term. Yep. So I would say, you know, focus on relational over transactional, particularly, I think that's generally a good idea, but particularly in the moment (laughs) and try to find um, perhaps new and different ways that are very much true to your brand, but maybe are especially responsive and unique to what your customers are demanding today. Now, I do recognize that that's easier said than done for a lot of retailers that, you know, unfortunately, so many are really just dealing with an existential crisis right now, and they don't necessarily have feel like they have the time or, or the cash, frankly, to not uh, mm. charge customers or to take on what might be some additional expense. And I think you just need to be, therefore, very strategic about how you make those choices. But, you know, hopefully those are investments that will pay off over the long term and that and customers will remember and you you know you do see you know getting back to this idea of uh, we talked last time about the net promoter score or just in general this idea of willingness to recommend a brand to your friends or to share uh, the story of of your experience with a brand whether that's on social media or or directly and I think we're seeing you know quite a few retailers get a lot of mileage so to speak out of out of those stories by some of the actions they're taking. Absolutely. Clearly a difficult environment to do that, so I don't want to diminish that. It's an interesting one because it becomes obviously a, you know, an individual strategic decision 
obviously you've got to manage the finances as well, but are we going to invest with the outlook of potentially maybe not a sales event immediately? We're not going to trade anything immediately, but we'll build up some great reputation. We'll build up some trust. We'll build up some loyalty. And will that pay off in the future? And actually, how does that blend as you look at cash flow and everything? You know, there, there is no clear answer for, for everyone. One of the examples that I saw that I thought was an excellent idea, really on brand, and as you say, very memorable. It's not going to necessarily create sales immediately, but it will in the long term. And that's teen clothing brand AE, uh, American Eagle, mm-hmm. who are doing the, the first ever virtual prom, which I thought was a brilliant idea. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, for better or worse, but sometimes better, this pandemic has created new opportunities and is, inspires sometimes quite a lot of creativity. And, you know, and some of those are very much of the moment, but others may, may persist well beyond this. So, Absolutely. The other thing I was just going to mention briefly, I have a, the quote in my book uh, by, from Maya Angelou, which is, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Mm. And I think there's a broader lesson, certainly for branding and, and retail strategy in that, but I think, I think particularly in this moment where people are coming from a lot of fear, confusion, et cetera, there are some unique opportunities to create that emotional connection. The thing I worry about is that sometimes we get too cute or manipul- manipulative potentially in trying to sort that out and we do things that aren't really intended, <laughs> you know, well-intended. So I think that's, that's a little bit of the gating factors to make sure what you're doing is really coming from the right place, not just some sort of taking advantage of the situation. Yeah, sure. That makes a lot of sense. So let's shift on to the third item I wanted to dive into today, and that was radical, which, as we explored last time, was about creating a a culture of experimentation and being willing and open to taking risks. Right. But Steve, I wanted to dive into, you know, particularly if you're a large national retailer, how do you not become so radical, you know, take so many risks that you end up essentially ruining the business? Sure. Well, like, like a lot of things, I guess the devil is in the details. I mean, I know the, the, the term radical is perhaps a bit, a bit charged. It, it's not this idea that you do extreme things just for the sake of, of being extreme or that you are reckless uh, in your risk taking, but it is really to push people more to the edges. And I think as we've seen, the riskiest thing for most of these retailers that are struggling right now, you know, not because of the pandemic, but but prior to that, is because they didn't take enough chances. Um, that it was actually mm. far riskier to do little or to go slowly. So, so that's the fundamental point. The other point is that you do have to push the edges, I think, both because, and we talked about it a little bit in the last episode, it's it's very hard to be that signal amid all the noise in people's life if you don't do something uh not not again out there just to be provocative but to really push around the edges a little bit to get attention in the first place but all of this has to has to come back to your fundamental brand strategy and what you stand for so you shouldn't be operating outside of what your fundamental brand positioning and value proposition and the ethos of your brand is uh but you do have to find ways to take many more risks and in many cases push yourself to to the edges 
So the definition of radical, I suppose, is a little bit in the eyes eyes of the beholder. But, mm. but I think the, the the key thing is that if you're not moving ahead, you are falling behind. And I think the particular thing which many retailers didn't get was that the pace of change in the last few years in particular has become much more exponential rather than linear. You know, when I go back to my Sears days and we saw competition emerging that we needed to be worried about. So Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, you know, all sorts of different off the mall competitors that were really growing in the 80s and 90s. We certainly knew that we were losing market share and in danger of moving market share. But the growth of these companies was pretty easy to understand because it was almost all about how fast they could open stores. Mm. So there was, you know, things just couldn't change that quickly because it was so rooted in how, you know, the underlying nature of how stores opened. Yeah. Well, that's really still part of what's going on today, but digital disruption has really changed the pace at which brands can grow, right? Mm. So, so I think there, the way that some retailers, particularly legacy retailers, perceived risk was just misaligned to how fast things were changing. And of course, when you operate more in a digital world, it's just much more dynamic in terms of the things that you can you can do. Um, not only is it a lot easier to fundamentally re-architect your website than it is to renovate 500 stores, <laughs> <laughs> but, but also the more tactical things in terms of um, running personalized promotions and what merchandise gets presented on a website and so forth. So, so, I mean, digital seems so trite to say digital changes everything, but Mm. in fact, (laughs) that, that has a a big thing, a lot to do with how we think about risk. And, you know, certainly earlier on in the conversation, as we were thinking about actually how things have changed, you know, digital of course has a, a lot to answer for. So you've got these eight essential elements of remarkable retail. And what I really like in the book is you give people a way of essentially creating a scorecard, going through, assessing yourself. Um, There's a a five-point assessment. And if you're interested in doing that, you will, of course, have to go and pick up a copy of Remarkable Retail, which would be absolutely the right thing to be doing, I might add. (laughs) Thank you. So, Steve, just as we begin to wrap up our conversation... How do you see retailers struggling to transform into being remarkable? What are the biggest challenges and how would you how would you suggest people weave their way through those challenges? Sure. So I'd, I'd say a couple things about that. One is I think that there's this whole exercise I advise most retailers to go through, which is being rigorously honest about where they where they really sit. Mm. Do they really understand their customers well? Do they really understand what those customers value and how that compares to other choices they have? And really how much change is required not to just keep pace, but to really get out in front of the competition. So I think there is a an analysis component, I guess, of really going to school on where you are, but it's also being honest about and accepting the reality of your situation. I think I, I go into a little riff in the book about, about denial and, and people defending the status quo. 
But part of the reason that happens is that I think people don't do the work and they don't really push themselves to to go deep and, and accept what's really going on. Yeah. But then, of course, you know, the big thing is is to take the action that's required. And in some cases, that gets back to what we were just talking about, which is is really understanding risk. The risk of standing still is actually greater than the risk of doing some of the things that we're afraid to try. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to culture. And you know, my biggest fear is that some of these retailers that that really need to transform don't have the leadership and the culture that they need. It's pretty easy uh, to, to you know to read and to write a book and go, oh yeah, like that makes sense, and I believe it, and I hadn't thought about maybe a few of these things before, and I hope my book will do that. But ultimately, it comes down to to leaders being willing to to push the organizations ahead and take some of those risks. And um, one of the other quotes I have in the book is, is from my friend Seth Godin, which is, if failure is not an option, then neither is success. I love it. And so many retailers, including two that I worked for, we were afraid to make mistakes when it came down to it. It wasn't necessarily that we didn't understand what was going on or that we didn't accept the need to change. But when push came to shove, we often did not take the risks we needed to take because we didn't want to look stupid or we didn't want investors to criticize us or we were afraid we wouldn't get our bonus. I mean, it was a, I, it was a whole set of things I'm sure we all can imagine that keep human beings from, from taking the risks and being vulnerable. Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of that from a corporation standpoint, separate book, I guess, in terms of uh, self-improvement, <laughs> but from a corpor corporation <laughs> and organizational standpoint, it usually comes back to culture. And, yeah. um, you know, those are, those are hard things to change, certainly quickly. I, I really strongly agree with you. One of the fundamental beliefs that I, I have is that there are three elements that ultimately lead up to a successful transformation. And the first one is having a strong will to change. And that's absolutely right there. You know, in that culture, it ends up if, if you don't have that strong will to change, if you don't have you know, the honesty about what is going on, you end up procrastinating, flip-flopping, you know, moving resources around. There's all sorts of weird behaviors that end up happening or weird actions that end up happening that all ultimately lead to a failed transformation. And unfortunately, we've seen too many times where that can end up. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the other thing I would say that's interesting, I've heard um, and I've gotten asked this question, particularly the last several weeks, you know, we're seeing a lot of these retailers that are getting kudos for putting in place some of these innovations during the crisis, curbside pickup, et cetera. Yep. And the follow-on question that I've gotten asked is, do I think that some of these retailers that have been slow to change will fundamentally become more innovative by virtue of what the pandemic has taught them? Mm. And I'd like to be more optimistic. But I have two thoughts on that. One is, it's been really clear for 20 years, as far as I'm concerned, but certainly the last five to 10, that retail has been profoundly changing. And yet, most of these retailers didn't do very much. They basically watched this happen, mm. right? So how much evidence do you need? <laughs> you know, if, you're, if you were running, pick your favorite large retailer that's been around forever that has, is struggling, insert your yeah. favorite retailer there. And I say, well, you know, what were they doing the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years that wasn't radically shaking their business to the core that will be changed by virtue of, 
of something that, you know, hopefully will not happen again. Mm. And then the second thing is if some of these ideas could be put in place so quickly, what were they waiting for? Like, why did it take this crisis for them to innovate? Yeah, that is a brilliant question. <laughs> and so to me, I'm actually, and I'm somewhat saying this a little bit to be provocative, but I look at some of these CEOs that have quickly put some of these things into place. And my attitude is they should probably be fired. You know, if, if, if this turns out to be such a good idea that will persist, why didn't they do it a year or two ago? You know, what is it about the pandemic, you know, in particular that has changed their orientation towards innovation? So if it takes desperation for you to change, mm. well, I guess better late than never. But, uh, you know, the battle for relevance has been <laughs> around for, for quite some time. And so, I, you know, I do hope that, that we'll see a lot more innovation on the part of some retailers that have been slow to change. But if you go back to recent history, yeah, plenty of things were going on, you know, most of which I try to get to in the book, that should have caused them to act sooner and with greater force. Uh, because, you know, a lot of times in the crisis, you don't, you don't really have the, the degree of freedom, so to speak, to make some of the changes that you'll need to make mm. that will persist. So, so we'll see. It's, it's certainly a hard set of current events to really predict. And if you're listening to this and perhaps you're feeling a little uncomfortable in your seat, maybe that's touched a nerve there. My challenge to you is to take the energy that you have used over the last few weeks and months to make change happen and make sure that you embed that into your culture so that you can continue to evolve. You can continue to transform and you keep up that energy. You keep up that momentum and you could rewrite the future of your business. Don't let what Steve has been talking about, don't let that sort of whole reluctance to change overwhelm you after this has all happened, because that would be the worst thing. So that's my personal challenge to you. If you're feeling a little uncomfortable with what we've just been talking about, you have to make sure that you get transformation going in your business. Well said. Thank you. <laughs> well, let, let's see the action. I'm a strong believer that any retail business that is in business at the moment can still transform, can still save the day but they have to take action ultimately. That's what it's all about for me. Exactly. Steve, this has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed diving into your fantastic book, Remarkable Retail, and exploring lots of different avenues. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for, for jumping on to explore this with me. Uh, of course, it's been, it's been great fun as well, and I appreciate the opportunity. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Ali. So that was my conversation with Steve Dennis there. I really enjoyed that one and I hope you absolutely took a ton of golden nuggets from it. Steve just has this brilliant awareness of retail as I'm sure you can tell from that conversation. And if you've not checked out his book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Digital Disruption, then I highly recommend you go out and find yourself a copy from All Good Booksellers. As I mentioned earlier on, it's been so well received, even though it has just launched. And I was really honoured to take part in that launch alongside Steve, of course, but also alongside Carl Boutet, our guest from episode 82, renowned marketer Seth Godin, Professor Scott Galloway, Deborah Weinswig, Jason Goldberg and Jim Gold. It was a really fantastic event 
virtual, of course. But if you were not able to make that, then you can catch the replay of that on the show notes page from today, which once again, you can find at obandco.uk slash 84. And over there, you will also find the link that you need for Retail Transformation Live. It's going to take you to retailtransformation.live. That's the website address. Nice and easy to remember where you can register for free to come along to this massive virtual event on the 9th of July. The last one received some really fantastic reviews. Mary said, wow, what a great session. Having this event at such an uncertain time was so helpful. Love the technology used and how easy this made it to attend the sessions. The host was engaging. Thank you very much, Mary. And fun through a very busy day. Seeing the retail world pull together to share information and ideas was inspiring. And that is absolutely the aim of the game, to share insight, to share ideas, and of course, to inspire. So do come along and join us on the 9th of July and register for free right now, retailtransformation.live. So we're going to wrap this one up right here. I'm very much looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the conversation with Steve Dennis as well. I'll look forward to catching you in the next episode coming very soon. Bye for now. 